Thank you for joining IAB There. And now your host, Brad Behrens. Over to you, Brad. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to IAB There. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's Tuesday, May 26th. I hope everyone had a terrific Memorial Day holiday, and I also hope that you paused for a moment to remember what Memorial Day is about, which is about the people who've gallantly given their lives in military service for this country. Um, thank you again for joining us. IAB There is our daily live stream that we have created to connect the interactive marketing industry. On today's show, the Consumer in Crisis, the uh, IAB and the Center for the Digital Future at the Annenberg School at USC uh, have a joint project called the Coronavirus Disruption Project. It is a survey of a, of a statistically accurate snapshot of the US population, it was in the field for the first time in April, and will eventually be going back into the field. And our guest today is uh, Professor Jeffrey Cole. He is the founder and CEO of the center, one of my very best friends. Uh, let's bring him onto the screen. Uh, Jeffrey Cole is coming. And Jeff, welcome to IB there. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brad. It's good to be here. Looking forward to it. So we will be open to questions as we're going through some of the findings from the Coronavirus Disruption Project. The way to ask questions is to post them on Twitter. And to do so, please use the hashtag IABthere, one word, all caps. Once again, IABthere, one word, all caps, uh, to post a question as we're digging in. Jeff, uh, I want to build a bridge between the findings of the study and the concerns of our audience. But before we get to the Coronavirus Disruption Project, one of the things that distinguishes the center is its longitudinal approach, uh, which means it's with the, uh, the, the US project, you've been surveying the same 2000 families for 20 years, I think going into the field for the 20th year. Let's talk about one of the earlier crises in the U.S., which was 9/11. Uh, which I can you talk with us about what your your reaction was then, and how the coronavirus disruption project parallels that today? Well, th this is our 20th year, and back just before the beginning of the 21st century, we became convinced that the internet was going to be sort of important; it was going to grow. So we decided once a year to really talk to Americans and find out how we were using the internet and what was growing. So we've done this every year, but we did a special survey in 2001. After 9-11, we thought everything had changed. And that was the really the first crisis since the internet was in at least 50% of homes so we went into the field off schedule and really wanted to see where people were getting information, how they were communicating with each other, anxiety levels. And this, the coronavirus, is the only other time we've gone off schedule, which I think makes sense. I think we've all been thrown into the biggest social science experiment of all time, even though none of us volunteered for it or were prepared for it. And you've been talking with people all over the country uh, about this data. What's been resonating with folks the most when you've been talking? We'll dig in to the details in a moment ourselves, but what are people interested in that you're seeing as you chat? I think everybody believes that this is really going to bring significant change, not just until a vaccine comes, but some of our behaviors may last long afterwards. I don't want to compare this to the Great Depression, although economically it's beginning to look like that. 
But my father grew up in the Depression, and 50 years later, still carried some of the effects that, that how we valued money, that a job was something you could never give up because you weren't happy. A job was what you did to take care of your family. I think to the dying days, the people who grew up in the Depression kept those attitudes. I think we're going to see some of that. I think we're going to see a profound reordering of society, moving closer to home, avoiding unnecessary face-to-face -face contact. I think handshaking is dead. Maybe casual hugging and kissing is dead. But I think people have really been interested in how this may produce long-lasting change. Right. And I think just it's worth hammering home that the, the main insight there is that there is no going back. There's only going forward. And, and, and how we go forward is an open question, but we're starting to see some indications about that in, in the data uh, that we're talking about. So if we can, let's go to the first slide, uh, which is that Americans of all income levels are worried about money. Uh, if you can walk us through this, what are we seeing here? Yeah, well, first, we asked what are all the fears or all the concerns about the pandemic. The number one concerns, higher than even money, are medical concerns, concerns that we or people we love will catch the virus, that it won't be gone in six months. But economic concerns, needless to say, are very high on the list. In the 50s and 40s, people are concerned that it's going to eat up their savings, concerned that they will not be able to afford uh, the kinds of things that are coming. We're not quite as concerned about our jobs. 28% of us are afraid that we're going to lose our jobs. And you can see, looking by economic level, those concerns cut through every group. So that's a, a kind of anxiety. We'll talk about anxiety a little bit in a minute, but that anxiety about economics is pretty strong. One of the things that we're hearing again and again is that coronavirus has accelerated trends that were already inevitably there. Uh, and so if we can go to the next slide, this is about, about loneliness and anxiety. But I know I'm, a, I'm an advisor to the center and worked with you there for many years that we've been talking about a loneliness, loneliness, pardon me, loneliness project for quite some time. So talk, talk with me, please, not only about this slide, uh, but also about this slide in the context of, you know, an accelerated trend rather than a newly created one. I got really interested in the issue of loneliness when Carol Folt, the new president of USC, sent a memo out in November after she had been president for four months talking about how in those four months, nine USC students had died. At least three of them were suicides, probably more like five or six. And this happens at all campuses, and SC deserves a lot of credit for recognizing and acknowledging the problem. But it turns out that uh, suicide is one of the two leading causes of death for Gen Z. They report they're the loneliness, lonely, loneliest generation that's ever been measured. And the defining characteristic of being Gen Z is having digital media your whole life. And in theory, digital media should mean it's easier to build connections, to seek friends, to feel part of a community. And yet the reverse seems to be true. So we've known there's been a crisis of loneliness, and we've been really itching to get into that and address it when COVID came along. 
And our data shows that over a third, 37% of all ages, report that they're lonely. It's about 50% for those uh, who are under 25 are reporting issues of loneliness. And if you think it, maybe it's those people who are isolated alone. How could you be lonely if you're quarantined with six other people in two bedrooms? But that's not the case. Uh, living situation doesn't seem to apply. Only 4% of people say they're less lonely. Anxiety hmm. levels even higher. Now, this makes more sense. There's so much to be anxious about. Our health and our loved ones' safety, our jobs and money, and uh, what's the future of the world going to look like? But 62% of us say we're more anxious. Only 4% say we're less lonely and less anxious. I'd like to meet those people and learn how they became so well-adjusted or so oblivious. Uh, but loneliness and anxiety levels through the roof. We're also seeing things parallel to that. Uh, drinking is up. About 31% of people are drinking more opportunity and anxiety, about 41% are eating more, uh, we're exercising less, and which are things that can be good for stress. And for those who smoke marijuana, 42% are smoking more marijuana. For people in high incomes, it's about 53%. So we're seeing it's having a profound toll on our psyches at the moment. The question is, which things do we shake as soon as this is over? I think one interesting question, and we should probably get some uh, creative agencies uh, onto the show, is you know how do marketers change messaging around this? We, we've seen in our uh, spend research at IAB that a lot of agencies and brands were pulling back on campaigns while they adjusted the, uh, the, 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 the messaging because it wasn't appropriate any longer to have a picture of a bunch of people at a beach or at a bar and et cetera. But on the emotional side, I don't, and you've worked uh, with agencies and market and brands for many years, so I'm wondering if you have a point of view on this. Uh, you know, how do you how do you approach the American consumer differently with a heightened degree of anxiety and loneliness when it comes to messaging and saying the right thing, not only to to move the product but also not to offend people? A very powerful question. First, I noticed about ten days into quarantining that I found advertising on television very reassuring. It reminded me that the world I lived in was still there. It was good to see these brands. I really mean that. Uh, now, I think it's going to be a long time before we see the hard sell for Coca-Cola or McDonald's. Advertising is going to have to adjust, reflect our emotional uh, concerns and our psychological concerns. And you've seen the, the industry's really pivoted pretty extraordinary. I'd say, I, I, we actually should study this, but I'd say about 62 thirds of ads reflect what's going on right now. They've been rejiggered to reflect the coronavirus pandemic. Only a third were ads that ran before and could run afterwards. So I think you know, consumers want an acknowledgement that the environment in which they operate, the, the advertiser has changed. And of course, some ads have just disappeared because those companies, you know, restaurants and others are serving products that can't be taken care of now. 
I, I also, just as long as we're sharing sort of personal reactions, I, I don't know if this is a common one, but uh, watching shows today that were filmed before coronavirus, there's this initial kind of frisson of discomfort where you see all of those people and they're together. They're, they're walking down hallways. They're not respecting social distance. They're outside and it's, they're not wearing masks. And it takes me a few minutes to actually kind of get over that, that awareness and just fall into the story again. You know, when you see one of the reruns of the late night shows that before the virus and you see them in the audience with an audience, it looks yeah. funny. It's, uh, I think that's one of the effects, we'll see that in a minute, that we're going to carry for a long time. I don't think we're going to go right back to shaking hands, hugging, being in crowded subways, maybe in the Ozarks and swimming pools. But I think we're going to carry that fear and that apprehension for a long time. I think we're going to talk in the future, uh, assuming nothing worse comes along, we're going to talk about before coronavirus BC and after Corona AC. And I think that's going to be a marking point, even after a vaccine. Have you, this is not in the slides that we chose, but since you mentioned the Lake of the Ozark story, which was, uh, you know, took caught fire uh, in the media and social media over the weekend, what we saw were in Kansas and Missouri, a, a crowd of people jammed into a public pool. And the response to that has been highly politicized where people uh, on, on the right end of the spectrum uh, are you know, uh, suggesting this is a, an issue of personal liberty. People uh, on the left are suggesting it was incautious. Um, are you seeing a political divide in the data um, around, around politics? So it seems inevitable that you would, but what are you seeing? Well, we did ask about who you trust for information, uh, who's done a better job, the federal government or state government. And political orientation shows a little bit that everybody's pretty united except for the very conservatives. The very conservatives trust the president more than anyone else believe the federal response, but it has been politicized, but not quite as much as you would think. And you would think things, you know, you would think, and I'm not going to be political at all, it's not my na nature anyway, but you would think in an era or at a time when we're just not sure what we need to do, that we would err on the side of caution, but we didn't see, we, we, and I think the majority of people did, but we saw some blatant examples over the weekend, whether that was pent up frustration or desire to show other people that they can do what they want, the consequences be damned. I just worry that those people in the swimming pool in the Ozarks are going to start flying all over the country. But we'll well, they're all they're being asked by their local governments to self quarantine. Let's see uh, if they do. Let's go to the next slide uh, because we've sort of touched on this already, and this is uh, the the notion of what's really going to go back and what's going to be permanently changed. So hope for a post-pandemic world and also a new sign of the times. What, what do you see well, here? First, on the psychological level, I think we spent enormous amount of time with our families. Parents with kids in college say it has been a godsend in most cases. The kids are home. They're a family again. Most of us are eating three meals a day. I think we've met our families and decided we like them. Uh, and I think the same thing with spouses. So I think 
the family unit is, I, I believe, is going to be significantly tightened from this, and we're going to spend more time. We are going to avoid, I think, crowded places for a very long time. The, we've seen the kind of changes that in our 20-year project takes years to see incremental change. We've seen in weeks, days, for example, uh, of those people who never bought online before the coronavirus in the last two months, 37% of them have started to buy online. So particularly seen, groceries. Yeah, uh, particularly groceries, but lots of other things. I mean, beyond the fact that we can't go to stores, there's also, I'm one of those who gets excited at receiving things. <laughs> I track Amazon. I'm excited when it's five stops away. And then when it comes, and then there's this colossal letdown when it's here and you know, so you go of course and buy more. But buying behavior has changed. We think working at home has been an enormous success with some exceptions. The people who are doing it best get up at the same time, get dressed, have a dedicated workspace. But we think a lot of people have realized that working at home and using Zoom is working pretty well. And I don't think we're gonna see massive numbers move to 100% working at home but I think you're gonna see large numbers of those who can work at home, which is 76% of us, according to the survey, can do at least a little bit of our work at home. We think you're gonna see massive percentage of the percentages of those do a little bit of work at home. Learning at mm -hmm. home has been a complete failure, we think. Um, mean, oh, learning at home, meaning school. School online. We looked at college students you know, USC, where I'm affiliated, no better, no worse than anyone else, professors had three days to get their courses online. Professors who never planned to ever teach online and in many cases didn't even know how to do it, had to do their courses within three days. The result's been not very good education. We think for online learning to really excel you're going to, courses are going to have to be designed with online in mind. Digital natives are going to have to teach. We think we'll revert back to in-person learning as quickly as possible. And already universities are getting sued. Students are saying, I didn't pay $60,000 right. a year to get third grade online courses. And can you imagine students starting college in the fall? And the first week of college is going into your parents' basement. I, yeah, I used that, to that's where you go after college. I used to tell the freshmen I taught at UCLA that only 20% of what you learn is in the classroom. Well, Mark Twain famously said, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. The, I think it's worth saying that the snapshot that we got up in April about online education and that sudden conver uh, conversion uh, being a failure is nothing new. We saw that when television first came along and instead of using camera work and three cameras, what they were doing was rolling camera on a radio drama. Uh, with every technology, it takes a while for the, the affordances to actually come into the skill set. Learning, not learning converted from a classroom and a lecture right to online. It's going to have to be created with online in mind the way you had to create programming with television in mind, not just radio where you could see the person. Yeah. Um, let's dig in on one thing on this slide, which is this, this really intriguing, uh, I guess, 19% divergence between 
wanting to spend more time with your family, but wanting to spend less time with other people. I can't quite make sense of that one. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're going to, at least for a while, I think we're going to narrow our worlds. Uh, sadly, I think we need to be more international to deal with viruses and pandemics in the future. I think we're going to hunker in, try to move industry back uh, to local areas. I think psychologically, we are going to feel comfortable around the people we know and live with and associate with. Everyone else is going to be a big, bad stranger, I think, for a long time. I think we're going to create much narrower orbits. We may still have broad orbits online, but I think our face-to-face -face orbits are going to be smaller. I, I don't have any, uh, any data on this, uh, and it's a kind of lurking question for me. I'm very curious what the pandemic will do to online dating, whether it's eHarmony or Match or Tinder, uh, but the the you know using the internet to get close to somebody when you can't get close uh, is is going to be really very tricky. Uh, have you... as, as as we know, Gen Z not only drinks less, has less sex than any generation, is dating less. It's already these are things that have been you know happening for a while. There's no doubt that online dating is going to continue. There's probably going to be a slower process from online to moving in person, but we still have hormones. We still have social needs. We still want to be, you know, they're, they're, I don't think that's going to disappear. You know, we joked, but it's true. When we started this, then in a year, we're going to have to look at the birth rate, the divorce rate. And I say the murder rate. I don't mean literally the murder rate. I mean the quote murder rate within households of people killing each other. But uh, I think the actual murder rates are going to be way down. But uh, we know uh, online dating has to continue and dating and sex has to continue. Although on the list of things um, that we are enjoying about being isolated, more time for sex and intimacy was pretty far down the list. Much lower than more time for all the television we can catch up on, um, which is sort of depressing. Uh so let me do two quick PSAs. First is for those of you who have questions uh, for Dr. Jeffrey Cole, then uh, do please share them with us on Twitter using the hashtag IBThere. I'll also say that uh, this interest in, uh, in Gen Z is something that we're very involved with and invested in at IB. Uh, for those of you who paid attention last week, we had Kathleen Hessert, who runs the We Are Gen Z platform on. Uh, we'll be doing more and more about this, this next generation as it starts to come into its economic power. Um, if we can go to the next slide, please, which is about working from a home. Uh, we spend a lot of time at, at work and now increasingly we'll be spending time at work uh, when we're uh, still living, uh, still in our homes. What is this, uh, what I think is intriguing here is that people, uh, people th seem to think I'm okay with this. Uh, I can do this forever. We're seeing across Silicon Valley, some of the largest tech companies saying you can work at home till the end of the year. You can work at home till forever. Um, do you think this is going to last is my question. I, I think people are eventually going to want to go back to the office. First, keep in mind there were real class issues here. 26% of us say they can't do any of their work at home. Of those who have a high school education, it's over half. So first, there are some people at certain levels of society who can't do their job, bus drivers, McDonald's chefs, 
Uh, it's the higher level workers who can do some or all of their work at home. Secondly, the people who can do their work best at home, as I mentioned earlier, have a dedicated space, which comes from a bigger house, have strong connections, I mean, uh, internet connections, mm -hmm. so there are issues. But for those who are working at home, and once again, 74% of us can do at least some of our work at home, uh, most of it we like. We like not having a commute. We like being able to control our environment. We like uh, a lot. We like not getting dressed in the morning. You know, I, we like a lot of those things. There are also things we don't like. Um, the the most uh, concerning, I think, is about 30% of us are concerned about the erosion of the boundary between work and home. The higher income, it's about 50%. Mm. Uh, also, there are lots of distractions at home where kids usually fall more to women than to men. So mothers have a harder time working at home than men do. But all in all, I think it's worked out reasonably well uh, I don't believe that you're going to see massive numbers of people move solely to working online. We miss, significant percentages of us miss our colleagues. Some of us just miss being in a different place during the day. Uh, and some of us, doesn't make sense in Los Angeles or New York, but about 30% of us miss the commute. Now, if you have a 15-minute commute and it's not a slog through bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic filled with rage and pollution, a commute can be nice. It can be decompression between work and the home. But uh, no, I think we, we need the intellectual stimulation in the office. We, don't, we, we see people working one or two days a week at home. One thing uh, that you said to me in a prior conversation, which has really stuck with me, is that the real winners in coronavirus are dogs. No, they've never had more walks. They've never had more attention. Dogs and Zoom. But yeah, Sorry. dogs, this is the dog. You know, you're home all day. You know, the dog's starting to wonder, why, why aren't you leaving? This is, you know, getting more. And incidentally, if you've seen these wonderful stories about animal shelters are empty. There literally are no animals to adopt. I worry when people go back what's, that they're going to keep all those dogs. Whereas cats, on the other hand, they couldn't care less if you're home or not. They might probably prefer you're not home. But yes, dogs have been the undisputed winners. So we only have time for, I think, one more slide. Let's go to this next slide. And this one is particularly important to us here at the IAB, which is about content consumption being at an all-time high. Uh, some of the some of the the asterisks here are important. Can you please walk us through through this, and then let, let's talk. Oh, let's dig in quickly on AVOD versus SVOD sure. versus well, ad supported. All, all media use is up. It's what we're moving to. It's the easiest way to fill our time. It always filled most of our at home awake time anyway. But we're moving where streaming is way up. It's where most of the original content is, and we were already primed. Um, no pun intended, between Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And three months before the virus, we had Disney Plus and Apple. So uh, finally, you know, we have enough time to watch all the Netflix stuff. In, th in this pandemic, we went mind of the Irishman was four and a half hours. But beyond that, regular television use is up. Social media <coughs> use is way up. I <coughs> 
audio a little bit less because historically we've used audio in the car when we can't watch television. Well, during the pandemic, we can watch television. So all of the streaming is up. Before, as far as AVOD, the advertisers supported, Peacock, NBC's effort at AVOD starts in some of this month, but most of the country in July. I mean, I believe we're going to pay for two and a half subscription services. We're pretty much there. And any growth, I think, is going to be in advertising, uh, particularly as we come out of this with less disposable income then we go into it. So I think AVOD is going to be a very important part of the equation. It's a so, terrible time to start an AVOD service and an even worse time. I mean, my God, what a tragedy for Quibi. Mm. Uh, I mean, Jeffrey Katzenberg did everything right. He took his time. He got the best talent, Steven Spielberg, Reese Witherspoon to make the content. It was, it was brilliant. Everything was done right. He was financed by every studio, but he was starting on April 6th. And the whole point of Quibi was you use it in these short segments in the spare moments of your life on the go. And now we don't, we have too much time and we're not on the go. So what a horrible time to have started, you know, the best laid plans, there was nothing he could do. Um, fortunately, he has enough money, they're just going to have to reboot it when this is over and call this an interesting first step. Uh, a beta, as it were, uh, but although an inadvertent one. You're going back into the field eventually. What do you think you're going to be paying most attention to in terms of things that will have changed between early April and whenever you're next back in the field? Well, two things. One, I think where we are now with us moving back into society, except for those who are at the highest risk, I think that's the way it's going to stay for a year till we have a vaccine, hoping that we get one. So we want to see which things, first of all, what precautions people will take <clears throat> when they leave the home, masks, gloves, social distancing, want to see which activities they will go into and which we won't. Will we go into restaurants? Or are we going to permanently shift to more taking home and delivery? Uh, when will we go to sporting events? I think movie theaters are probably at the bottom of the list. And then when this is all over, whenever that is, we want to know what are the permanent effects? What are the things people still won't do even when there's a vaccine? Well, we'll have you back on the show to talk about this as we learn more. Uh, Jeffrey Cole, thank you so much for joining us on IB There. It's been a real pleasure. My thank you, Brad. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on IAB There. Uh, I, on tomorrow's show, we will be welcoming Allison Levin. She is the VP of Ad Sales and Strategy at Roku. And we'll be discuss discussing streaming over the top uh, and advertising opportunities during this pandemic, which follows right along from our conversation today. I Be There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. It, today's show was produced by Connor Healy, uh, Joe Ons, John Ward, and Tofika Mahinadin. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the IB. Thank you so much for joining us. Tune in again tomorrow because you know if it's 2 p.m. Eastern on a weekday, it's time to IAB There. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye, everybody.